So last week we started this conversation around the topic of what is the gospel. And um, we began last week with the heart of the gospel. And this week we're going to be talking about the head or what I've titled the mind of the gospel. And last week we kind of centered around the authorities of authority of the scriptures and looking at the idea, is this the word of God or not? Is this our, is this, is the Bible the authority uh, in our lives or not? Is it the word of God or not? And how important that question is to us individually as Christians, because if it is, that means something. And if it is not, that means something else. So if the word of God is, is our authority, then it should be allowed to be authoritative in our life. Sounds strange, right? Now, Personally, I think it's unfortunate that the value of those questions around the Word of God are remarkably underrated in much of the modern church. And I can't say for certain why that's the case, but my feeling is that the vast majority of churches that have been throwing away the authority of God's Word are doing so because they don't want to deal with the inevitable difficulty that comes with standing on God's Word. Because there's difficulty that comes with it. When you walk into a modern workplace, especially if it's a government workplace, and someone says, so what is the, you know, what, what, what tell me about you. What, what do you, what do you do? I say, well, I'm, I'm a Christian. Oh, are you one of those people that believes everything the Bible says? Yes. That causes problems. <laughs> Whether you want to admit it or not, it causes problems. But the funny thing is, if you actually read that same word, it promises you that standing on this is going to cause you problems. So it shouldn't be a surprise to us. But now the problem as a believer, and remember, we're talking about believers. Over these next couple of weeks, we're talking about people within the church, not people outside of the church. The gospel is not just for the unsaved. The gospel is also for Christians. It's something we should be revisiting on a regular basis. <clears throat> the problem is when you discard the authority of Scripture, you also discard answers to very important fa- uh, questions of our faith. Very important questions, because it's the only place they're found. We're going to deal with one of those questions today, and the question that we're going to be dealing with today is, why do I need to be saved? This is a very common, when you talk to people about the gospel, you need, you, need to, you need to accept Christ as your Savior, you need to be saved. Why do I need to be saved? I live a good life. I'm a good person. I, you know, I help little old ladies across the street. I I don't even speed. I don't use bad language. I pay my taxes. I'm a good person. Why do I, who've never done anything wrong, as far as I can tell, need to be saved? And I think one of the mistakes that we make as, as believers when we're trying to minister the truth of Christ to someone is that we start with the cross. We start at the end. We say things like Jesus died for the cross on the cross for your sins. And while that's true, we're, it exposes a very serious problem in our thinking. And the problem in our thinking is we think they have a clue what we're talking about. The majority of our world now is unchurched. Even people in the church tend to be unchurched from a biblical knowledge standpoint. Do they know what sin is? Do they know what grace is? Do they know what it means that Jesus paid the price for our sin? Here's a better question. Do we know? Or are we just burping up things that we've heard people say over the years? My pastor says we need to be saved, so you need to be saved. Saved from what? I have no idea. Why do I need to be saved? Another good question. You should schedule an appointment with my pastor. And when he answers that question, tell me. 
Aren't you the Christian? Oh, yeah, hold on. I'll schedule it for both of us. You see, it shouldn't be happening. This is a significant question that people all around the world ask, and we should be able to answer this. We should be able to explain to people why they need Jesus. And what I find out is that oftentimes we kind of know, but there's holes in our understanding. And because there's holes in our understanding, we don't want to look like a fool and get it wrong, so we don't say anything. The answer to that question is much more than simply Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. You see, if, if the issue of holiness and purity before God was simply an act of sin, if it was just them pulling the fruit off the tree and taking a bite, then purity would be nothing more than behavioral modification. All I've got to do is avoid doing that thing and I'm good. This is why people have a hard time understanding why they need to be saved because they have not done anything. They have not physically, I've never physically hurt anybody. I've never physically broken any laws. I've read the Bible. I'm good. Why do I need a savior? It's because we think this is behavioral. It goes far beyond behavior. The issue is internal. It's more than just what sin is. It's what sin did. Okay? It's what sin, sin did to us. There is, a, there is something that happened at that moment that only God can fix. And I think we overlook it. And we overlook the value of what Christ did for us. Or we put it in a wrong category. Jesus came to undo something. And it's not your behavior. Your behavior should be the fruit of what he's going to do. So what we're going to do is we're going to find out that this issue, this issue of why we need to be saved centers around two words that are so common in Christian lingo that we very rarely consider the implication of what we're actually saying. And those two words are this, holy and pure. Holy and pure. Technically, these, you know, if you really break this down, these should be put into two different categories. But for the sake of simplicity, I'm going to lump them together because their application is essentially the same. Something that's holy is pure and something that's pure is holy. Okay, we can look at it that way. Uh, but there are two kinds of holiness when we look through Scripture. When we talk about purity, there's moral purity. That's someone who makes good choices. You don't commit adultery. You're not a drunkard. You're not an idiot. You don't use bad language. You, you, you treat your kids well. You treat people around you well. You're morally pure. You're good. You're not, you're not just making, you're not just a disgusting person. We all know people like that. Anyone can choose to be morally upstanding, to find a a degree of moral purity. This is not difficult. This is behavior modification. But the second type of purity is the type of purity that matters. And this is the type of purity that we confuse because we think moral purity is this other type of purity, and that is ceremonially pure. Ceremonially pure. Something that is ceremonially pure is able to stand in the full presence of God and survive. You think about that. Something that can stand in the presence of the fullness of God and live. 
survive. It's not destroyed. There are not a whole lot of things like that. Now, when you think about this, during the history of Israel, when you talk about the priesthood, each year a priest would be selected to take the offering into the Holy of Holies to, to atone for the sin of the nation. And this person would have to cleanse themselves. They would have to become ceremonially pure in order to, in order to, to enter into the Holy of Holies to be in the presence of God and live. It was not uncommon for priests to not prepare themselves correctly to enter in with the sacrifice and drop dead with it. Now, how would you like to have your name pulled out of that hat? Bob! I don't want to. And what would happen is they would, they would have to purify themselves to the point where they were ceremonially pure. Now, that wonderful book that most of you read just before you go to bed, Leviticus. A lot of that book contains the instructions on how to become ceremonially pure. And we're going to go through that today in detail. <laughs> no, we're not. We're not going to do that. I don't want to do that, okay? But it outlines that for the priest. And here's what would happen. Things that would make the priest unclean is if they were around people, if they were around people who were sick, if they were around death or disease, bad language, drunkenness. Anything that would be considered impure. They would have to sequester themselves away so that they would spend time cleansing themselves. And if you read through the qualifications, you're talking about multiple changes of clothes, bathing in this way, offering such and such a sacrifice at such and such a time. It was very detailed. And even people who would do that sometimes would enter the Holy of Holies to stand before God, and they wouldn't make it out. Now, some people say, this just shows the cruelty of God. No, it doesn't. It shows the goodness of God. Because any, any impurity cannot stand before the goodness of God. That is how pure God is. It's not his anger that takes you out. It's his purity. Think about this. This is what God told Moses. He says, you cannot see my face, nor, uh, no, for no man shall see me and live. No one can see God and live because his, he's so pure, we can't do it. We are so impure, we cannot be before him. We may be morally upstanding and good. We may think we're good, but we are not cleansed enough to be able to stand in the presence for all eternity in heaven before the fullness of God and survive. We're not. Even the momentary exposure that Moses had to what the Bible calls God's backside. You want a good laugh? God mooned Moses and it was glorious. (laughs) Moses' face glowed with the glory of God from not even being exposed to even a tenth of a second of his holiness. It left a physical mark. Only those things that are made ceremonially pure can be in the presence of God and survive. So hold on to that thought and let's move, let's move on. When God finished creation on day six, how did he describe everything said then god saw everything that he had made indeed it was very good 
So every so uh, so the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Now that word, uh, uh, when you when you look at things like this, very good. Greek terms and Hebrew terms have multiple applications, and so th- there's there's more than one way of translating uh, of translating something. But what we, what translators try to do is they try to find the most common usage of these terms. But one of the interesting things is if you take both of those words and and you add a slightly different translation to them, it can also be translated correctly abundantly pure abundantly pure and god looked at everything that he had created and said this is abundantly pure this is very good now remember scripture also says that only god is good but he calls everything that he created good he calls it that way so abundantly pure is completely applicable at this point now what this means is that creation could be before God and survive. Mankind could be before God and survive. We were clean enough when we were created to stand before the fullness of God and live. There was no impurity in us, probably because the Spirit of God was alive in us. I think it's uh, verse 2, verse 7, where it says God breathed his Spirit into us. And then Genesis chapter 3 happened. It says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any other beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said? Pay really close attention to that. Has God indeed said? You shall not eat of every tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said. Another way you can read that is, it is written. God's word tells us, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Stop there just for a quick second. What is another way of saying that line? And the serpent said to the woman, God is lying to you. God's word cannot be trusted. He's holding out on you. This is not the truth. That's what he's saying. Because God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, I want you to think about something. That line was not a lie. The fruit that they ate was the knowledge of good and evil. When they ate it, the serpent wasn't lying. You will be like God, knowing good. He didn't stop saying you will be like God, all-powerful, majestic, all-knowing, and all-good. That's not what he said. He says you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. That was not a lie, but it was still a lie. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a a tree desirable to make one wise. So she took of its fruit. She also gave to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. I like to point this out as often as I can. There's a lot of people who say, if Adam had been there when the serpent was tempting her, this never would have happened. He was there the whole time. Which is why the New Testament says, through Adam, sin entered the world. Because he was a husband not doing his job. The job 
is to take care of the family. He just sat there. <laughs> just goes to show you, men have never changed. <laughs> yeah. Honey, should I eat this? Yeah, yeah, whatever, whatever. <laughs> There's a serpent tempting me. Stop, stop, I'm watching a bug. What was it that the devil talked them into? Was it how good the fruit was? Look how tasty that is. Mm, mm, mm. No, it was not how good or tasty the fruit was. The sin runs deeper than eating the fruit. Something happened in them that opened the door to the sin. The sin was choosing to believe that God's word was a lie. It is so important for us to understand that. They chose to believe that God's word was a lie. That choice opened the door to the action. And some people have a hard time with that, but let me ask you something. Before you, you say that this just, just, like, just, just isn't fair, whenever you do something stupid that you know you shouldn't do, what's the first thing that happens? You know you shouldn't do it. You've been warned not to do it, but you spend time talking yourself into it. You find a way to give yourself permission. You shouldn't drink like that. I've had a hard day. I deserve a, a I deserve this. Don't smoke that. All my friends are doing it and they're fine. I'm stronger than them. I have I'm I'm more capable. I'm gonna be just fine. Don't drive that fast. There's no police officers around. I'm gonna be just fine. Adultery is wrong, but my spouse has been ignoring me for a long time. If you want to live with that person, marry him. Well, you know, it's complicated. Got news for you. Not complicated. Not complicated. We spend time talking ourselves into these things because we know they're wrong. We give ourselves permission, and when we give ourselves permission to believe that the standards that God has placed before us do not apply to us, that permission that we've just given us opens the door to the action that we call sin. But the sin happened long before the action. The sin happened when we chose to believe that God's word did not apply to us. Paul says it like this. So the trouble is not with the law. I always want to read Paul with like a, like a New York City gangster accent. I don't know why. Maybe it's just because when you read about the history, it's kind of like how he was. So if I fall into that periodically, don't worry about it. I'll, I'll jump out at some point in time. But in my mind, I'm thinking, so the trouble with the law, you know what I'm saying? is like, for the spirit is good. The trouble's with me. You know what I'm saying? For I am all too human. I'm moving right along. I am all too human, a slave to sin. I really don't understand myself. For what I want to do, uh, I, for I want to do what is right, but I, I don't. Uh, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know that what I am doing is wrong, this shows that I agree with the law. I do it and I know what's wrong. I'm agreeing with the law. So I am not the one doing it. It's the sin living in me that does it. And I know that, uh, that nothing good lives, lives in me, that, uh, that is in my, uh, my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I'm really not the one doing the wrong. It's the sin living in me that does it. Is that not confusing enough? 
I used to call it the doo-doo passage because it explained all the crap that I do in my life that I get away with. We all do the same things. You see, in simple terms, our willful sin separated us from our creator. The willful, sinful nature of humanity is what separated us from our creator. It literally broke the world. When Adam and Eve, the only two people, chose to believe that God's word did not apply to them, God was holding something out, God was, li- God was lying to them, they chose to move in a way contrary to what God had prescribed. They literally broke the world. And we're told that they would die. The death that happened in them was the death on the inside. It was the death of the spirit. And it bound us to the curse of of the fall. And before you say, that's not fair, I shouldn't be bound to the curse of, of their own mistake. Let me ask you something real simple. Do you live a ceremonially pure life every second of every day from the moment you first were born? The only logical answer is no. Because most of us can't get past the Ten Commandments without going, oops. And all I have to do is ask your parents. I don't even have to ask anything else. They steal, they murder, they do anything. No. Hey, have your kids ever dishonored you? Well, I don't want to say out loud. You just did. We know we're broke. We know that on the inside we're busted. Our impurity before God is what separates us from God. Our impurity before a holy God is the problem. That is the curse that all of us are under. It's got nothing to do with whether or not you're some murderous, evil person. The fact of the matter is you are impure at birth to the point where you cannot stand before a holy God and live. That's the problem. And I think that was the devil's goal the whole time. The devil knows better than anybody that God cannot stand in the presence of sin. Sin cannot be in the presence of God in, that, in order for that, that issue to survive. So that was the only way that, could, that we could be separated from our creator. And it worked. What was pure before God in the beginning is now broken. And something's got to be done. But the cool part is God wasn't finished with us. God doesn't lose a fight. God is patient. God knows how to get everything back. He knows how to undo this. But this is the reason we need a savior. The truth of the matter is we don't even know what it means to be pure before God. You ask anybody, what does it mean to be holy and pure before a righteous God? We don't even know. We don't know what level of purity we're talking about at that point in time. We don't know how to make ourselves perfectly capable of standing before a holy God. If we could, we would. But we can't. This is why we're told we are saved by grace through faith, not of any actions of our own. 
because there's no way for us to make up for this thing. We don't even understand what happened. We can't recreate a perfect spirit before God. You think about this, it makes no difference how nice you are, how much you help others, how much you give, how upstanding or faithful you are in the community. You have been born into an existence that makes you incapable of being pure before God. From the first cry that comes out of that baby's mouth, you are impure before a holy God. You're broken. But there's a fix. God was not done. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we see the beginning of this fix. And I will put enmity, enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and hers. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. I want to focus on that word enmity. The basic meaning here is conflict. Essentially, what God is saying to the devil is, we're going to fight. I didn't want this fight. You started it. I'm going to finish it. It's important. One of the, I think it's one of the things that's important for us to understand is we should never try to start fights, right? None of us should ever try to start fights. But when you're in one, finish it. And finish it permanently. One of the things my dad ever said was, don't start a fight, but just make sure when it's over, it's over. So, okay. Obviously, he was the same. Actually, I was taller than him. Most of the time, we just avoided it. The fruit of her seed is humanity. The fruit of his seed is the sin in humanity. The fight is about us. It's about you and me and the rest of humanity. That's what they're fighting over. The question is, how and on what battlefield? How do you fight a spiritual battle? And what does that look like? Will it ever be visible to us? I have no idea. Second Corinthians 10, 3-5 says this. For although we do live in the world, we do not wage war in a worldly way, because the weapons we use to wage war are not worldly. On the contrary, they have God's power for the demolishing of strongholds. We demolish, listen to this, we demolish arguments. And every arrogance that raises itself up against the knowledge of God, we take every thought captive, making it obey the Messiah. Hey, Abel, I forgot uh, to grab that, that sword from the armor. Will you grab that for me? Now, I want you to think about this. We demolish arguments. We demolish arrogance that rises itself up against the knowledge of God. What was the weapon used against Adam and Eve? It was arrogance that raised itself up against the knowledge of God. They had a a full knowledge of God. They had the word of God literally spoken to them. And what happened is the devil comes forward with an argument. An argument based in arrogance. Think about that. The, the argument based in arrogance raised itself up against the knowledge of God and they took the bait. They believed it. 
This is why our argument is not against flesh and blood. It's against principalities and powers. Those are non-physical things. A principality is a standard. And a power is only something you perceive. No one has power over you unless you allow them to have power over you. Power is not a physical thing. Power is a mental thing. A principality is not a physical thing. A principality is a mental thing. You can call it spirit if you want. They're very interchangeable. We are fighting in a battle that we cannot physically fight in. How are we supposed to do that? God says, fight the good fight. Fight what? Fight with what? Throughout the New Testament, there is only one weapon given to believers that is offensive. Everything else we're given is defensive. There is only one offensive weapon. Anyone know what it is? Abel just brought it to you. Ephesians 6.17, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is your vital opinions about me. One offensive weapon. The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. It is the only weapon we're given with which to fight. That's it. There is no other tool with which we can fight this battle. And the funny thing is, it's the very thing that caused the problem. The very thing that we rejected in the beginning is also the very tool that can save our soul in the end. What broke humanity in the beginning was our rejection of God's word. What can save humanity in the end is our acceptance of God's word. Isn't that interesting? How much God balances the scales. We fight the battle the way God has asked us to fight it. What was it that Jesus said to the devil while he was tempting him? When the devil says, you should do this. What is it that, the devil, that, that Jesus said to him? How did he fight the devil? It is written. I know what you want, but God's word says. The lie that the devil uses to try to trip us up is the same lie he's always used because he has no other lie. The only thing that the devil is trying to get you to believe, no matter what's going on in your life, no matter what sin you're dealing with, no matter what problem, what family problem, what financial problem, it doesn't matter if it's alcohol use, drug use, if, if, if you're addicted to pornography, if you're, if you're abusive, whatever, the end result is all of that is the fruit of a life lived outside of the word of God, period. Because if you commit yourself to the word of God, none of that has a hold on you. Everything we're seeing in the world around us today, everything is the result of a world without God's word. And I'm not saying we should live in a theocracy. 
If you read history, there's this little time called the Dark Ages. A theocracy is a bad idea. The church is never supposed to govern. If you read all the way back to the Old Testament, God didn't want the church to govern. He wanted people to want to serve him and live according to his word. That's what he wanted. He actually warned us against going in the other direction. All he wants is a people committed to him. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, that word means repent, and seek my face, I will heal their land. It's only one cure for the issue that our world has, and that's the word of God. We choose to fight a spiritual battle by trusting in the timeless, inerrant, authoritative word of God as our only source of truth and righteousness for our entire lives, for your life, for your family life. Something that I used to hear a lot that I don't hear in houses anymore is I don't care if that's what you want to do. When you're living under my roof, you will. You know why a lot of parents don't do that anymore? That's mean. My children have rights. No, they don't. No, they don't. Your children don't have rights. Your children have a parent. And your job is to raise them to be good, productive, useful, Christian citizens. Not to protect their right to wear something that reveals everything to the world. Well, all the other girls are wearing it. No one cares. Except all the other boys. They seem to be really interested. It doesn't matter. We accept the truth of God's word in all things, all areas of life, all areas of sexuality, all areas of gender, all areas of marriage, because it is our only source of authority. Our only source. The word of God, the scriptures, are the weapon of our warfare. And the midst and, uh, um, and the mind is the battlefield. I said, you can call it the spirit if you want. This is where we fight. This is why the word says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Come to me in repentance. The word repent means learn to think a different way. We've got to change this from what the world tells us our standards should be to what God's word tells us our standards should be. If you want to be free from the curse of sin, if you want to be free from the bondage of our impurity before God, if you want to be free from the struggles that come from this life, I can tell you exactly where to start. Here's a couple of ways that you can begin this journey to find the freedom that so many people are looking for. Here's where it starts. But what does it say? The word is near you. The word is in your, uh, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. By the way, is the word of God. And if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with the heart that one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Here's another step. Excuse me. 
Um, uh, continuing on, for the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same uh, Lord is Lord uh, 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 is Lord over all, is, uh, is rich to all who call upon him, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How about Psalm 37, starting in verse 39, it says, but the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in the time of trouble. The Lord shall uh, shall help them and deliver them. He shall deliver them from the wicked and save them because they trust in him. How about John 3, 16 through 18? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We tend to not, we tend to not read for any more uh, uh, in that section, but look what happens if you continue reading. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, now, hold, hold on. Isn't the gospel offensive and condemning? No, it doesn't have to be. All the gospel tells us is, is how we're broken and what we need to be, do, uh, what we need to do to be restored and what will happen to us if we refuse. That's the condemning part. You don't want to accept it? Well, then here's what happens. Now, check this out. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. How can we be condemned already? It's actually pretty simple. Because we're broken. We are bound to the sin that was handed down from generation to generation. We live in a constant state of impurity before a righteous and holy God. But when we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead and we commit ourselves to the path laid before us through the word of God, we are justified through our faith. The word justified means you can still be guilty, but your sentence is commuted. You are made right before God. How about this one? Isaiah 118, it says, come now, let us reason together. Isn't that a mental exercise? Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Let us reason together, says the Lord. If you do what I'm asking you to do, all that is wrong will be made right. All of our victory is found in this same place, believing the word of God. If you want to be free from the curse of this world, you have to know Jesus. In order to know Jesus, you have to accept him as your Lord and your Savior. You have to acknowledge you are impure before a righteous God. You have to repent and believe. If you're not willing to acknowledge that you are impure before a holy God, then you have not repented. You just want the benefit of heaven. That's great. It doesn't work. It begins with repentance, understanding that we are hopelessly, hopelessly broken before a holy God. We are impure before a holy God. And we have no ability to fix that on our own. You also need to understand that this is only the first step in the journey. Coming up to an altar call and saying, I need Jesus, I'm broken, I'm impure before God, I have a hard time making good decisions, I need God to help me. That is only step one. That's not the end of your life. There's no one standing up here. Good, you accepted Christ. Bang! Okay, moving right along. Okay, you accepted. This is not happening. We used to call that 357 evangelism. We wanted to make sure you got to heaven. 
It's not advisable. Generally speaking, you end up in jail. It is just the first step in the journey. Justification is just the beginning. You also need to remember that you cannot walk this road alone. You cannot walk this road alone. There are too many Christians out there that want to be, you know, I, I've talked to God. It's just, just me and him and we're good. No, no, you're not. I'm sure you all know people like that. Maybe you've been there yourself. I, I, I don't know. But here's the reality. Scripture tells us that the devil prowls around us like a lion looking for the weak. You know who the weak are? The ones that are out there by themselves. They can convince themselves of anything. They can twist scripture to mean anything. They can give themselves permission to do anything because there's no authority in their life but themselves. That's why we're not to disregard the gathering of the saints. We are all on this road together. Walking alone might be a choice, but it's a bad choice. I read you something last week, and I'm going to finish with this. And I hope after today, you have a slightly bigger understanding of what this means. That we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. There's a reason why the reformers picked these statements. It's because this is how we become pure before a righteous God. On this earth, every time something impure would touch us, it would make us impure. Now we're on this earth and Jesus touches us and his purity makes us pure. The problem is the church is filled with a lot of people who Jesus has not been able to touch. You want to know him, but you don't want him to know you. You want to read the Bible and follow it and hope that's good enough, but the fact of the matter is, Jesus says he has to know you. It's more than just memorizing trivia, folks. You have to be made pure before a holy God. If you can't confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, meaning king, over your life and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead according to scripture. And that raising him from the dead means everything that came before it. All of the scripture that talks about him up to that point, you have to agree that is right. Then at the end of the day, the reality is he doesn't know you. Christ should know you. You should know him. That requires something of us. Faith is more than Sunday. Christianity is more than a moment at an altar. It's a life. It's a journey that we all walk together. I'm going to pray for us. And I'd like you to be thinking about a couple things over the next week. Where are you? Where are you in that journey? Are you just beginning? Maybe you've been around Christianity for so long that it's just become routine. Maybe you come to church because you always have and family members keep bugging you. 
It's not a reason. It doesn't make you right with God. It actually makes it worse. Because you end up mocking God in the process. I'll come, I'll come here to get my, get my family to shut up. But I'm not going to give you anything. I'm not going to give you my life. I'm just going to come here and tolerate you. That's condemning. Not freeing. The question is, where are you? What are you doing right now? What are you letting God do in your life? Is it the bare minimum? Or does he have your life?